you know, I just really started thinking heavily about suicide, just really kind of struggling because I really felt alone. You know, I don't have anybody in my life that I can talk to about this. Hey there, my name is Sean, and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives, and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, are not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. I want to thank all the survivors who have joined me here on the podcast since we launched back in July of 2020 and to everybody who listens, to all of you, really, thank you. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to join us here on the podcast, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at Suicide Noted. There are several links in the show notes, and the first one is another way you can reach out to us. You can leave us a recorded message. There's also a couple of links to help us out with a financial contribution as we try to reach more people in more places, help them feel less shitty and less alone by sharing these conversations and these stories. To those of you out there who have contributed via Patreon or right on our podcast host platform, which is called Red Circle, thank you very, very much. We really do appreciate your support. And of course, you can also help us out by rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcast Platform. It really helps people find the podcast. And as I've said several times, we do want more people to find the podcast. And finally, please keep in mind that we are talking about suicide on this podcast. It may not be a great fit for everybody, may not even be a good fit for everybody. Take that into account before or as you listen. But I do hope you listen because there's a whole lot to learn. Today, I am talking with Sarah. Sarah lives in Kentucky. And she is a suicide attempt survivor. Hey, Sarah. How you doing? Uh, not bad. How about you? Not dead. And you're in Kentucky. Yep. Nice. I appreciate you reaching out. And I'm glad that we connected. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity. Of course. I know that you're a mother. Mm-hmm. I know you're in Louisville. Yep. I know you have a car. <laughs> yeah. Unless it's possible you just broke into that car, but I do not advise that. And uh, what kind of car is it? Just curious. A Nissan. All right. So again, some of this stuff I might know because you shared it with me, but for the sake of our audience, uh, what was the reason or how did you end up finding a podcast about suicide? Um, you know, it was a little over a year ago. I was really having a hard time kind of sunk into a depressive episode, which then kind of turned into like a mixed episode where, you know, if you're not familiar with that, like you're depressed, but you also have a lot of energy. You're not sleeping, you're irritable, those kind of things. You know, I just really started thinking heavily about um, suicide, just really kind of struggling because I really felt alone. You know, I don't have anybody in my life that I can talk to about this. I don't know anybody personally that I've ever dealt with it. So, you know, one day I just went into Spotify and searched suicide and suicide noted popped up instantly when I started listening to the different episodes, like I didn't feel as alone and it almost kind of felt like a little bit, I don't know if it's going to sound weird, but I kind of felt comforted that I am not the only one that's dealing with this. 
Right. Now, it's possible in Louisville that no one's going through these things, but probably that's not the case. So is there yeah. no place for people to go and just, hey, I'm a suicide? There isn't. I know there's not. There's nowhere to go. No. Where would you go if you wanted to find a group of people who went through this thing and you could talk openly and and not go and not get sent to the hospital? Exactly. Um, I mean, there's a couple of support groups around town that I know about that, you know, are like depressed anonymous or there's like a bipolar support group. But even within the mental health community, uttering the S word is like, oh, my gosh, what do we do? Like everybody immediately just kind of starts to shut down a little bit. And you're like, whoa, hold on. Like this is a real symptom of a real illness. And, you know, we we can't just ignore it. Yeah. And we're just talking That's all I'm doing here. I'm talking. If you, whilst uttering the S word, also got out a loaded gun and pointed it to your head, I could see why people might get a little bit more like, whoa, 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 let's act now. I get that. Yeah, I get that. Uh, I don't think that's what you're doing. You're just wanting people to talk and listen and have a conversation. Yeah. Just be heard. You know, and I don't expect people to have the answer. I don't even expect people to know exactly what to do or, you know, to be able to fix my problem, but just to get that weight off of your shoulders. Yeah. I am struggling and I want to die. Could be the answer, part of the answer, ironically. Yeah. Now, do you feel that way today or right now? What's that? That you want to die? It comes and goes. Yeah. A handful of times throughout the day, you know, it just hits me. I'm sitting Mm -hmm. watching my kids play in the swimming pool and I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired. This isn't worth it. I just want to die. But then, you know, it kind of, I'm able to work through it a little bit easier. How? You know, I have a lot of different coping skills that I really lean on pretty heavily, especially since I don't have a whole lot of people to talk to. You know, like if I really feel like I'm I'm struggling, I've got a treadmill down in the basement. So I'll send the kids in the other room and let them play video games. And they think it's the greatest thing in the world because, oh, my gosh, mom's letting us play video games. But then I'll just pound it out on the treadmill, you know, listen to some music and, uh, you know, maybe watch TV or something. I can do some mindfulness and deep breathing and that kind of thing to kind of help ground myself and kind of get back in that space that like, okay, it's, it's temporary. This is going to pass. Yeah. What kind of music do you listen to when you're pounding it out on the treadmill? (laughs) I really don't discriminate. Like my playlist, you can go from mamas and the papas to, you know, Leonard Skinner to dashboard confessional, you know, as emo as you can get. And it's like, I just goes all over the place. And you're a mom of how many, how many kids? Two, 10 year old and a seven year old boys, boy and a girl. And and are you alone in that? Or do you have a partner? No, my husband is lives at home with us. All right. So he's not somebody you can talk to about this then? Not usually. It's actually been in the last like two weeks or so. So it's a very recent thing that he's kind of come to a place where he can remain calm. If I start talking about, I'm really having a hard time. I'm feeling suicidal. I really feel like I want to die. Like, you know, can you help me with this? Like before he would just fly off the handle and he would just get so upset and he would just like start freaking out. Like his eyes would get real wide and, you know, he'd start pacing and I'm like, Whoa, hold on, babe. Like I'm the one that's suffering here. Like I'm the one that wants to, 
die, I, I don't need to be the one comforting you. It should be kind of the other way around. So, you know, I just learned very quickly, like, uh, no, we're just going to let that go. And yeah. I'm just going to deal with this by myself as best I can. And, you know, go from there. We do learn very quickly who's who, who we can talk to and who we can't very quickly, oh, absolutely. very quickly. <laughs> like, it, okay, that's not happening again. If it's somebody that it's like no longer in your life. Okay. But if it's somebody like your spouse or someone you're choosing to continue to have a relationship with, but you can't talk about these things. And what do you do? You have to fake it sometimes. There's literally no in between there. All right. I'm yeah. fine. I'm okay. I'm hanging in there. I think they would have my husband in particular. Like I, you know, he knew he would know that I would, I was depressed, but he wouldn't have any indication because of, you know, putting on the happy face and, you know, picking myself up and moving on with my day and continuing to function and take care of the kids and go to work. Like, I don't think he would have dreamed that I was suicidal. And so anytime I've attempted, it's always been like this shock, like, oh my gosh, like, where did this come from? Like, I, we didn't see this coming. What do you think he, and I'm not picking on him and probably many other people think it looks like so that when it happens, they would say, oh, I saw that coming. What do people think it looks like? I wonder, like you're freaking out or you're in bed all day or you're threatening explicitly and loudly and verbally. What does it look like? Yeah. I mean, I don't know what he was expecting. I don't know what he, you know, anticipated I would be showing him. Yeah. You know, when I was struggling. I mean, I don't know if he just thought that I would like be giving away some of my possessions, you know, like some of those big, like typical things that people anticipate, like, you know, mm-hmm. saying, I appreciate you and I'm sorry. And, you know, some ways saying goodbye. Like, I don't know if that was what kind of he was anticipating. I mean, at the end of the day, like, I guess a lot of people imagine when you're depressed to the point that you're thinking about suicide, that you're in bed all day every day things. And that wasn't the case for me. Like, right. You know, I was really struggling and I was really hurting, but I was still getting up and going to work every day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I was still getting up and taking care of the kids. Like they weren't going without meals. They weren't having to figure out what to eat on their own. So I don't know. I, I have no data on this, but I would say most people fall into that category more, more than the person who is bedridden though. That, that applies. I'm sure sometimes. Probably more people are living their lives in secret, ideating, planning. Yeah. This is why it comes up a lot in this podcast of like, oh, you don't understand the Sarahs of the world who are feeling that way and they're still getting up to go to work, taking care of the kids, faking it. That's hard, dude. And nobody's there to say, you know what, man, that's fucking exhausting. That's that's what makes it even, I don't know, it sounds like, tell me if I'm wrong, you know, you're taking something that's already so hard and it just makes it harder. Yeah. I mean- when all your energy is spent thinking about dying from the time that you wake up until the time you hopefully can go to bed at night, you know, and trying to think about like, how am I going to do it? How am I going to take care of this so that I can ensure that it's going to work? How am I, where am I going to do it so that I don't traumatize my children because I don't want them to be involved in the process of finding my body. How am I going to communicate to my family that this isn't their fault, that, you know, I just am suffering so much and I can't take it anymore. And then on top of all of that, you know, having to go to work and having to put on a happy face for, you know, the three-year-old asthmatic that you're taking care of, or, you know, the baby and their family that come in for respiratory problems, like, you know, trying to find a way to be okay 
for them and your family. And I mean, it's just, it sucks the life right out of you. Whew. All right, let's go back. However far you want to go back and however you want to sort of frame it. Uh, so where do you think that's, that starts? I mean, it really starts pretty far back. And I mean, I can yeah. remember distinctly when it started. I mean, I was in the third grade. I was nine years old and mm. for no apparent reason, I just started having these panic attacks mm. and it wasn't like, I just, I feel nervous and I'm shaking a little bit and, you know, I'm just fidgeting in my chair. It's like full fledged. I'm sweating and it's a mm. cold sweat. My heart is beating out of my chest. Like I feel like I'm going to die and I feel like I need to escape. I don't know where, and I don't know why, but I just have to go. And it was terrifying at nine years old wow nine years old now and, and you're in louisville kentucky at this time right uh-huh now does little sarah tell anybody um i didn't really have a choice but to tell anybody because it was happening happening at school all right they saw so you know they can see how pale i am and how diaphoretic i am and they can see me kind of like breathing fast and just this look of sheer panic and terror on my face. So, you know, she just tells me to get up, go to the water fountain, get some water, come back and sit down. And, you know, that's the end of that. And, you know, it kind of subsided a little bit and it didn't happen again for a little while, mm -hmm. but, you know, then it started happening very, very regularly. People were aware of when I was having them because they could see the symptoms play out in front of me, but you know, no one ever asked me like, what's wrong? What's going on? What, what's happening right now? Like nobody said, I'm here with you. You're okay. You're not alone. You know, like they just kind of watched this all play out. As an adult and you look back, is that really that surprising? It's not surprising, but it's surprising to me because I'm very sensitive to these things because I've been dealing with it since I was nine years old. So, you know, mm -hmm. it was nothing for me when my kids started having anxiety and panic attacks to be like, okay, no, we got this. Like you are okay, Ben this is going to pass. We're going to do some deep breathing, you know, and help him through it. But no, I mean, looking back, it was like 1996, 1997, you know, I'm sure they didn't think that, you know, kids were capable of dealing with these kind of things. And, you know, I wasn't really capable of, I didn't understand what was going on well enough to communicate to anybody. Sure. Like I'm feeling all of this panic and it won't go away and I don't know why it's happening. And then all of a sudden, you know, it keeps happening more and more. And I get to the point where I don't want to wake up in the morning mm. and I wake up in the morning and I'm just like so stressed out and I'm so sad. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't want to be here. Mm -hmm. Do you then or after then, or maybe at this moment ever have any inkling as to perhaps the reason why that happened? No. I mean, looking back even now, like, I have no idea. Like, I don't know if it was just like an anxiety thing and it just kind of went up a level or, you know, I just was really struggling with being in school and, you know, dealing with my peers and that kind of mm -hmm. thing. And that was throwing mm -hmm. me into some panic attacks. I'm not really sure. You know, it was never really explored. Like I, that my parents took me to see a psychiatrist, but I mean, they never really delve into the reason why something is happening. You know, they just yeah. immediately prescribed medication, which is what they did. Yeah. And yeah. And I don't, I don't know if there's a way to prove that we know what happened, but even the ideas of what it could have been from, because even though I think, and I, this is going to come as a huge surprise, I'm not a doctor. If we don't figure out something, 
probably it's not going away. It could, you could outgrow it. You could, it could just go, th- those things go away, but I don't think that you, they come back. They come back. Yeah, no. And they come back with a vengeance too. And so, so you're nine, what happens? After that experience to some degree through middle school and high school, I dealt with varying degrees of depression. Freshman year of high school, um, I was sexually assaulted and that just crushed me. And that just turned my world upside down. You know, it was not long after that happened that I developed an eating disorder. I have to tell you uh, or share with you, one of the things I have learned is that I, I really didn't have a sense of how many people, and I'm sorry if this sounds a little crass or coarse, I didn't realize how many people get assaulted. I don't know why I didn't know about that, the degree to which it happens. So I feel like an idiot, but I'm glad at least I have a sense of it now a little bit more. Not glad. You know what I mean? I want to be aware. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I hate that people have the experience of being sexually assaulted, but, you know, it's comforting to know that you're not the only person that's going through it. You know, hearing the stories from the podcast, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one. Yeah. So, you know, the, the eating disorder really went on for a very long time. And, you know, I really feel like the fact that it wasn't addressed by anybody really kind of played a role in, you know, like my future mental health and attempts Mm. and that thing. Like, you know, my parents never uttered the word anorexia or eating disorder. They never had a conversation with me about what's going on. Like, you know, why are you losing so much weight or you're school counselor is concerned, like what's going on? Is this true? Like, I mean, it just, it was never discussed. You know, the school counselor recommended that I get into therapy. So that's what they did. I got into therapy, but then they recommended I go inpatient because of the amount of weight that I had lost and the risk of, you know, sudden death. Mm. And, you know, my parents just yanked me out of their care and took me home and pretended like nothing ever happened. And so, you know, it really started flaring up again, those suicidal ideations, especially once I got to those super low weights, because, you know, your mind isn't, you're slowly starving to death. So that really has an impact on your ability to be rational. And I never, ever want to compare in any way. There was a period of time in my life where I was going through what I think was just massive anxiety and the way that presented for me, I couldn't eat. Mm. And I will tell you that went on for a few months. I had to move in with my sister. And after a little while, I could, my brain was different. Oh, I yeah. really couldn't think. I really couldn't function. I was just, well, I guess you're just not getting nutrients. I don't really know what's happening. Yeah. And so fucking hell. Question for you. Do you think this is going to be a little bit of a hard hitting question? Parents who may not be any the wiser, so it's hard to fault them, whether that's yours or others. You know, when they pull you out of a, a hospital, then the, then you just sort of go back to life as if nothing's happened. And we know that it's not you're, it's not going to work. Are they should they be held responsible in some way here? Is it negligence? But to the degree to which you're a parent, you should know better, period. Or do we give them a pass because they're doing the best they can? And, and I mean that like it's a real question. I'm not, it's not a loaded question. Yeah. And, you know, I've really struggled with that over the years, dealing with a lot of anger um, and resentment towards um, my parents for those decisions. Because I mean, I remember sitting there in that those conversations about wanting to hospitalize me. And on one hand, the eating disorder side of me is like, oh, they're not buying it. Oh, this is going to work out for us. We're going to be able to continue to starve ourselves and, you know, get to the perfect weight and this and that and the other. 
But then there's a larger part of me, the the Sarah in me that is like screaming on the inside, please, dear God, I am so miserable. I'm hurting so much. Please help end this. Let me go to the hospital so I can get some help. You know, and then, you know, now that I'm a parent, I can look at it from a little bit different perspective. Like I'm one of five kids, you know, they, and we didn't have hardly any money at all. They were just trying to keep our heads above water. You know, they were just trying to keep our family afloat. You know, they were doing the best they can. Yeah. By the way, I don't know much about eating disorders, but there is no perfect weight, is there? No. So be it. Well, the perfect weight in that moment is just less than you are now. Absolutely. So high school, teenage years. Moving into your 20s or am I moving too fast here? No, my high school years kind of were consumed by the eating disorder. By the time I got to college, it had gotten better. You know, I was still struggling, um, still dealing with depression off and on. Um, But I was thriving academically. I was, you know, on the cross country and track team and was very competitive. How is it that the Sarah in high school who's struggling is able to do track? To such a level that you could be doing it at college, it sounded like in high school between eating disorder and depression and other things, like, how did you do that? That was where a lot of the concern for sudden death came in because I ran cross country and track in high school and, you know, everybody was just so concerned about my weight and I did have some fainting spells, but at the end of the day, like, you know, my sophomore year in high school, I was super, super thin and came in 15th in the state. So, wow. I mean, and that's probably what my parents were seeing is like, she's still competing right. and she's still succeeding and she's still getting A's and B's. Well, oh. What is the Sarah that they're talking about? And also with that particular sport, you can almost say, well, she's in great shape. Of course she's thin. She's an athlete. She's a runner. Yeah. Maybe it didn't, you know what I mean? Maybe in other spaces it would be like, huh, but in track. All right. So you're a college athlete. Wow. Where are you going to school? Um, Bellarmine University here in Louisville. What are you studying? Uh, cardiopulmonary science with the ultimate goal to be a respiratory therapist. My, you're not fucking around. <laughs> no. You were, you were in it. You were struggling, but you're doing what you can do. And uh, what happens? Well, I got to my sophomore year. Mm. And so it was the end of my sophomore year. I was 20 years old. You know, that was really when I started noticing that, like, I would have times where I was doing really, really well. And I was really productive and I could go out and just pound the pavement and then come home and be super productive. I didn't need a whole lot of sleep and, you know, I was really sociable and that kind of thing. And then I would have periods where like, I would literally just wake up in the morning and I am so depressed and like, I feel physically ill, Mm -hmm. like my muscles hurt. Like I feel weak. I am exhausted. And it's just like, what in the hell is going on with me? But it was like happening infrequently enough that it was just kind of like, I I don't know what's going on, but I'm fine now. So, I mean, it it must be over. And so, you know, I finished my my sophomore year and I start getting that depression popping up again. More often. Yeah. And so like I'm dealing with this depression and I just like start feeling the weight of the world on me. Like I am just so overwhelmed because, you know, I'm doing well in school, but what if I start doing poorly? You know, I'm the first one in my family to go to college. Mm. I'm an athlete. Like, how do I maintain that? And, you know, how do I continue to work two, three jobs to be able to pay for me to live on my own and go to school? And I just sank to the bottom of the pit. And this is when you're a junior? 
going into my junior year. This was the summer before. This was June of 2007. June of 2020. Ugh, you make me feel old, but it's just part of what <laughs> I, I have to deal with it. I don't like you right now. It's fine. Um, don't. It's just, it's a Sean thing, not a Sarah thing. You are, uh, you said you're dealing, when you said I was dealing with my depression, when you say dealing with, what do you mean? Well, quite frankly, I was not dealing with it. I well, was suffering just, from the depression right. because, I mean, ultimately that leads to my first suicide attempt. I figured. And but so, so dealing with is essentially just trying to tough it out and get through the day. Yeah. I mean, and I was totally confused as to what was going on because it's just like, why do I feel this way all of a sudden? Because all along I've been doing, you know, school and work and the athlete thing and was super proud that I was the first one in my family to go to college. And, you know, then all of a sudden it's like tearing me apart and I don't understand why and I can't function. You know, I went to counseling one day and my therapist didn't do anything in particular to set it off. I just decided in the middle of session that this is it. Yeah. I'm done. And so uh, I went out to my car and I sat there and just uh -huh. started taking a bunch of pills and mm -hmm. just freaked out. Got halfway through taking the pills. Mm -hmm. Stopped. Freaked out. Was that the first counsel you ever went to? No. All right. So you'd been to therapy in the past. Pretty infrequently, but a few times. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. And had you? how long have you been thinking about it? Do you remember? It might be a little foggy now, but uh, I mean, at that point, I was probably thinking about it like two or three weeks. Okay. If we if we met you a month before then, you're not thinking about it. You're not no. doing well, but you're not actually thinking about suicide as an option, a legit option. Right. Those must have been a couple of tough two or three weeks. Uh, it was agonizing. Yeah. How did you cope? Do you remember? I didn't. Kept spiraling further and further and further down. Are you in bed? Are you taking walks? Are you drinking? Are you drugging? Are you... You were alive. You're doing something. And I don't want to poke too hard, but remember a lot of the podcast is around helping people feel like they're not alone. So I really do want to know that because there are people right now that feel that way, you know? Like, no, I mean, at that point, I, most of what I was doing to cope with it was I was just sleeping a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't mm -hmm. working a whole lot. And then I imagine you've already said this, so I, it's not, I'm not really going out on a limb. Then you're beating your sh the shit out of yourself because you're not doing the other things you think you need to be doing to stay on top of your grades and the, whatever else you have to be doing. Oh yeah. I'm my own worst critic. Right. Wow. So you went out to that parking lot at that first meeting with your counselor. All right. So you take the pills, you stop. Why'd you stop? You know, I started to panic, you know, instead of taking them in one big handful, you know, I was taking like two or three at a time. And then I would kind of stop and, you know, I was shaking because I was so scared. I was so nervous. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm going through with this. You know, at least I'm going to find some peace. But then, you know, I get halfway through the bottle and I'm like, oh shit. Oh my God. What am I doing? Like, mm. fuck. Were these pills that you were taking to deal with depression or some other type of thing? No, they were antidepressants. I was not taking them at that point because... You know, I was trying to communicate to my doctor that I felt like it was making my depression worse mm, mm. and it was giving me really bad insomnia. So, you know, I was having somewhat of a typical reaction to antidepressants that someone with bipolar disorder would have. So, I mean, I tried to communicate that to my doctor, not knowing that those were symptoms of bipolar disorder, but I just was trying to communicate to him that this isn't right. Like, I don't feel okay on these things. So I just stopped taking them. You know, there are people who would hear those symptoms and know probably what it is. You know what they're called? Doctors. <laughs> the doctor that you went, that's their job. Yeah. Yeah. I want to tell you something. I, and this might be a little unfair. 
I heard your symptoms and had a pretty good sense of what it was. <laughs> I don't know anything. I'm just a random bald guy in North Carolina. <laughs> I, it doesn't quite add up to me. I, I believe what you're saying. It just is astounding that this doctor didn't understand or didn't know or didn't ask those questions. Sorry, doctor. I just, I, okay. All right. You know, uh, looking back, I did at the time, I didn't know that he was asking me these questions to screen for bipolar disorder. Now, looking back, I'm like, okay, yeah, that's what he was doing. But he was asking stuff like, you know, are you experiencing hypersexuality? Like, are you sleeping with multiple partners all the time? And are you drinking and using drugs? And, you know, I answered no, like, you know, I'm in a monogamous relationship and I'm not using drugs. I drink occasionally, but, you know, nothing to excess. And he's like, well, then it can't be bipolar disorder. I mean, now I'm like, there's so many more things to do with bipolar disorder than just that. Like, Are, are there people that are going to hear this podcast? Parents, children, spouse, family, friends? I don't know. I mean, if they find it on their own. They're not. <laughs> maybe. Um, I haven't really decided. Yeah. So it does sound like, and this might upset some people. It sounds like you had some people that failed you. It really does. Yeah. And we can assume maybe, hopefully, that they tried and they meant well, but. Yeah, you slipped through a crack and slipped through a crack and slipped through a crack. You did. Yeah. And that is one reason, one, not the old, one reason why people ultimately say, I can't do this anymore. So what do you do that day? Do you remember? Do you, 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 you freak out? You don't take all the pills. I sit in my car for like 20 minutes and then I start feeling really sleepy. And then I start mm. getting headache and I'm like, oh my God, okay, I've done something here. So I went back into the counseling center and I told them what I did and they called an ambulance. I know the next part of the story, I think. <laughs> if you've heard the podcast, you probably know how I feel about it, but maybe I'm wrong here. I hope I am. So you go to the hospital. I go to the hospital and the nurse and the doctor that are assigned to care for me are just about as rude Ah, uh, here we go. As they can get, you know, they are very judgmental and very assuming of, you know, why I tried to kill myself. Um, you know, the nurse was like, this better not be over a boy. No, it's, it's not over a boy. Wait, Sarah, wait, please hang on. Are you embellishing or did she actually say that? No, she actually said that. That's a fireable offense. I think Sorry. you should be terminated. Goodbye. Now, this isn't helping either of us and no one cares what I think, but that's just absurd. Oh, yeah. I mean, and then it got to the point where the doctors had ordered the activated charcoal. You know, I was like, I'm not I'm not taking that shit. I'm not drinking it. No, that mm -hmm. is nasty. I'm not doing it like I'll take my chances with, you know, what's going to happen with the pills. Mm -hmm. And then she's just like, look, you either drink this or I'm going to shove a tube down your nose. Mm -hmm. and make you take it. I don't know much about this, but probably the same in Kentucky as North Carolina. I think there are some very, this doesn't justify anything she said or did, but they have some rather strict protocols and consequences if you die on their hands, uh, on their watch. So I think they go all out and it's not <laughs> about being nice or kind, which is probably what you need. But as you will do what I say, because we are keeping your ass alive. Period. Yeah. All costs. Did you take it? Did she shove it down your mouth? I ended up taking it on my own. Um, you know, she didn't have to put the NG tube down or anything to make me do it. Um, wasn't too happy about it, but you know, I got it done and 
they decided that I was stable enough to go to the emergency psych area. You know, that's basically just kind of a holding area until they decide what they're going to do with you. You know, are they going to admit you to the psych floor? Are they going to send you home? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they watch you for a number. Like, I think they watch me in this like little bubble area with a bunch of other patients for like five or six hours. And then I finally met with a social worker and I was not going to be admitted to the hospital. I had already decided that like, no, that is not happening. You know, I just want to go home. Somehow I was magically able to just, I don't know, put on this act that everything is okay. This is the biggest mistake of my life. I'm so sorry. Like I'll never do it again. They let me go home. Sarah, I am not the brightest guy in the world. I am going to go out on a limb and say that you get home and at some point something else happens and that you're not just okay. And we're talking now, but maybe I'm wrong. Tell me. No, I, I wasn't okay. I was still dealing with, you know, the depression and, you know, not understanding what was going on with me, like just trying so hard to find ways to deal with it. So, I mean, I, I just, I started cutting. I mean, what, what happened in that experience that you would understand what's going on? Nothing. So how are you going to magically know what's going on? You wouldn't. So, all right. Is this the first time you cut at that point in your life? Um, I cut a couple of times when I was in high school, when I was dealing with the eating disorder. But, you know, in high school, it was never to the extent that it was, you know, at this point. Mm-hmm. All right. So you're still in college. Still in college. Was able to make it through college. Wow. With these ups and downs. You know, I graduated with honors and you know, was able to get a job right out of school. And, you know, not long after that started my master's degree and got married. You know, I, I did okay dealing with the mood swings and the ups and downs until I had my first child, until I had my son. And then it just all fell apart. You know, I got really depressed. I got um, suicidal again. And then I started experiencing these highs that were a little bit more obvious and a little bit harder to deal with. Um, but, you know, like, I dealt with it. I was working. I was taking care of my son. I was taking care of my family. You know, I had my daughter three years later. You know, I'm just, I'm making it. Did you, do you think you have bipolar? It it still didn't occur to me that that was what was going on. And it wasn't until I went to a psychiatrist after my daughter was born that Mm -hmm. he was like, let's try a mood stabilizer. You know, I really think that this is what's going on. That was a game changer. Yeah, it's amazing that you even made it that far. I mean, you say, you know, you, I don't know the words you use, you know, you just made it happen or you, it's still pretty incredible that you were able to work and to take care of your family, be a wife, have a spouse, other oh, like so things. Hard. Right. And you're not taking medication or doing, it sounds like just about anything else to treat it. That's amazing. All right. Your daughter's born, your second of two children. Mm-hmm. And then there's all chemical stuff with postpartum stuff, but that's completely over my head. But I imagine that's part of it. Oh, yeah. Right. The mood stabilizer. So that's a game changer in a positive way. Yeah. I mean, I historically had like irritability and just rage Mm -hmm. that was off the chain. Like when my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, when we lived in a little duplex apartment, we would get into these knockout, knockdown, drag out arguments. And I would just fly off the handle to the point that the people that lived in upstairs would call the police. Wow. Yeah. That and other symptoms just started to, I felt more even 
kilter. Like I didn't feel like I was having these extreme ups and downs and my anger and my rage and irritability. Like it was better. I mean, a lot of this stuff is just, it's chemical. Yeah. Aren't we just, we're made of chemicals. Yeah. I mean, and you can only work with the mindset and the perspective that you have in that moment that's affected by those chemicals. Right. It's complicated. That was, if my math is correct, seven years ago? Six years ago, because my daughter was almost one. Okay. So six years ago, you went on game-changing medication. Mm -hmm. One year ago, you put the word suicide into a podcast platform of some kind. Yep. Hmm. So what was happening in in that time that it was a game changer, but the, but was a car accident. So I got rear-ended and pushed into another car in front of me. They said with that acceleration and then quick deceleration, I sustained a traumatic brain injury. Whoa. Okay. And you know, that definitely has played an impact on how well lithium works for me now, you know, Ah. it still works but it's not quite as effective as it was prior to the head injury. You know, and the mood swings are more dramatic and the lows are much lower. The highs are tremendously higher. It's just been an uphill battle since the head injury. And when was that? Uh, It was in October of 2019. Oh, wow. So not that long before COVID. Mm -hmm. And you're married. So you have at least one person who can say you're higher than usual. You're lower than usual. You're not alone in that. Like you'd literally have to be gauging it yourself, which can be especially hard. Or are you? No, he's never talking about it. No. I mean, especially like with mania, I can feel this like buzzing energy coursing through my body. You know, I I can't sit down. Right. And my mind is just racing to the point that like I can't make heads or tails from you know, any of my thoughts, you know, I'm just talking and talking and talking. That feeling is very familiar. And your husband is not either not noticing, or if he does, it's just, he's not going to go there. Yeah. No, he's not going there. Doesn't that affect your relationship? Yeah. I mean, we've been struggling with our relationship since my son was one. Yeah. I I just don't know how it wouldn't, because it's such a big thing and a big part of you. And to not have any common ground, it would feel like a real disconnect just on from my point of view, for anybody, not just you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. This is not a uh, relationship noted podcast, so we don't have to spend a lot of time. (laughs) And you said recently, every day you think about it. So that means today you probably thought about it. Mm -hmm. How granular does it get? Is it a planning? Is it thinking about days and times and methods and means and all that stuff? It usually gets to the point where I'm thinking about how am I going to do this? Where am I going to do it? That sort of thing. And then it's not until I'm really struggling with depression and I'm really in a low point or I'm in a mixed episode that I start thinking about when is this going to happen? Because this is going to happen. Is that how you feel? Right now? Yeah. No, not right now. But now you know enough to know that that you might not feel that way later or tomorrow. Oh yeah. I mean, just June 1st, I was called off to the hospital because I attempted to overdose. Let's go back. One attempt in college. Yep. And then How I have three other attempts after that. When was the second one? The second one was after the car accident in December of 2019. How did you try? I met with a therapist because I was just really depressed, having a really hard time dealing with the sequelae of the car accident by myself. You know, I didn't have anybody there for me. Told him that I wanted to die, that I wanted to kill myself. 
So he called the police. Next thing you know, the police are knocking on the door. They come into his office and they haul me out to their squad car. We get out there and they put me in handcuffs. And this is for your safety and mine. And I'm like, sir, I'm no danger to you. I'm just a danger to myself. You already have my purse. There's nothing in the back of this car that I'm going to use to hurt myself. Okay. All right. You do what you need to do. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Put me in handcuffs. That's fine. So then he takes me to the hospital and I get to the hospital and I immediately flip from this depressed state to boom, I'm just manic as can be. You know, I get to my room, they shut the door and I'm just hysterical because they're not communicating to me what's going on. Right, right. Um, I'm terrified and I'm just still reeling that like, oh my God, I was just in handcuffs like a criminal. And, you know, no one comes to my room to help me or to try to console me or to talk to me. You know, they do their 15 minute checks, they open the door, they peek in and they shut the door and they walk away. And so by that point, my husband had already brought me clothes and, you know, I had fashioned my t-shirts in a way that I could strangle myself. And I sat there on the floor and tied it tight enough that I blacked out, but then it came loose while I was out. And I woke up with one of the mental health texts over top of me. Do you want a pillow? And I'm like, what the fuck's going on? Like, what just happened? Where am I? Like, shit. And then, you know, I felt the t-shirts and I remembered what I was trying to do. And I was like, oh my God. That sounded a little more intentional than the first one. Oh, and then it just, you know, the third one is even more. But does the husband find out about the second one? The one in the hospital with the shirt? No, I never told anybody. Am I the first person to know? Mm-hmm. Other than the tech who found, oh, the tech who found you didn't know. No, they didn't figure it out. No, you tried to end your life in a hospital that's there to prevent you from ending your life. Cause that's really all they do mostly. Yeah. And nobody knows. Nope. Nobody knows. No. And if somebody, me or somebody else, would ask you this question, which is probably a challenging question, well, Sarah, why didn't you tell anyone? I think I know the answer, but I, I don't want to make any assumptions. Like, I mean, at this point in my story, I didn't think anybody would give a fuck. And you know what? I think you're right. Yeah. There are people, but you know, it's easy, I think, for people to sort of almost do this gaslighting thing where you're like, no. You're just a little, you're not thinking straight. People care and they might, but these are like valid, legitimate ways to respond to, for years of people not handling it well or dealing with it in a way that is, yeah. How long do you stay in the hospital? I think I was there two or three days. You And you, so I assume you just do what everyone else does, which is how the fuck can I get out of here? Yeah, I signed out AMA. I was like, fuck this. What does the that only, mean? I mean? It was nothing but chaos in that facility. Um, against medical advice. What was the medical advice? Uh, the doctor wanted me to stay. What, what, what did he think was going to happen there? He just wanted to observe me and titrate and adjust my medication. And I was like, fuck this. Yeah. All right. So you, that's December, 2019. So and this is two and a half years. What is happening? So, I mean, I come home and I'm still just struggling. I feel so alone. I feel so unsupported. I just, I can't shake this depression. And when I'm going up, you know, it's not the euphoric high anymore. It's not the, I have lots of energy and I'm very energetic and I'm productive. It's, I go into these mixed episodes where I'm just irritable and agitated and I'm starting to hear voices. You know, I just, I'm not okay. And I'm not okay for a really long time. Mm. 
And it was in June of 2021 Mm -hmm. that I was struggling with thoughts of suicide for like a couple of months and I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't, I was in that mixed episode. I was so agitated. I was starting to hear voices again. I was done. I was absolutely convinced that my family would be better off without me. Mm-hmm. And I was convinced that no one else would notice that I was gone and that I had died. And mm-hmm. so I knew that I didn't want to do this at my house. I didn't want my kids to find me. And so I gathered up a bunch of pills got my gun and I went to the park and I went to a part of the park that is not frequented by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I sat down on the bench. I took almost all of the medication that I brought with me. And the intent was, I knew that it was going to be hard to pull the trigger. So I thought I'm just going to take as much of this medication. That's going to relax me and make me sleepy as I can and mm-hmm. make it easier for me to pull that trigger. Then. I blacked out before I had a chance to shoot myself because there were more people walking through that area than there usually are. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Like you people are not supposed to be here. Like this is part of the park that nobody comes to. And so I didn't want to do it and traumatize them. And I didn't want to risk, you know, shooting somebody else in a, a, an effort to shoot myself. So, you know, I just, I waited, but then, you know, I just, I blacked out before I could shoot myself. You have the gun in your hand or is it in a bag? It's in my hand, but I've got it in my bag. I see. You come to at some point or somebody shakes you or something? Uh, the police. Oh, the police are back. Hey, police. Yeah, my friend. Back. The police are back. Handcuffs? I, not at this point, but I wake up. I don't really know what's going on. I'm starting to get kind of agitated. Um, all, I just want to go home. Because I mean, like literally there are like six or seven police officers that are just standing over me. And I'm like, fuck this. Like I keep trying to stand up. And at one point I get up on my knees and this female police officer lay down and she lifts up her leg and pushes me to the ground with her foot and then starts making, you know, snide remarks about my situation. They were so cold. And it wasn't until the ambulance showed up that anyone showed me an ounce of compassion hospital. Yeah. A regular hospital, a medical hospital for about three days. And then they transferred me to a psychiatric facility and I was there for six weeks. All right. Now you stay a little longer. Okay. Yeah. Help. Yes. And no, mostly yes. Hmm. Good. Now the husband who doesn't really want to talk about this stuff, the year before that brought you this, brought you stuff in the hospital. So he knows that you're there. He must have some clue. Mm-hmm. And now this happens six weeks. So you can't, I mean, so he knows. Oh yeah. And you've said that when that comes up, he kind of freaks out. So how was he responding to dealing with all this? He was actually very calm mm. in his dealings with me. Um, we didn't have like visitation or anything like that because of COVID. So like he couldn't come to the hospital and visit me, but we spoke multiple times a day on the phone. Um, you know, he would bring me money when I needed it. Um, he'd bring me, you know, extra clothes if I needed it. You know, he was very supportive. Now, you know, he was kind of losing it behind the scenes, rightfully so. I mean, I'm not, no judgment. I mean, I would be losing it too. But, you know, at this point, I mean, this is a game changer. You know, he's holding it together and he's supporting me and telling me, you know, how proud he is of me for staying and getting help and, you know, working nice. so hard and, He's playing it up very positive for the kids, like mom's in the hospital to feel better. 
were very proud of her. So like when I'm talking to them on the phone, they're like, we're really proud of you, mom. We can't wait to see you. And what do the kids think? What happened? You know, we just kind of tell them in an age appropriate way that, you know, mom gets sick sometimes and the doctors have to help her help me work through, you know, some issues with my brain that my brain works differently. You worry about them? Yes. There's some genetic component to this. Yeah. That's got to be hard. I mean, I especially worry about my son because he shows a lot of symptoms that I had when I was Mm. his age. Yeah, that must be fucking brutal. Six weeks later, June 2021, I think there's another one coming. Yeah. When does that happen? Uh, June 1st of this year. And that was pills? Yeah. Home? Park? Car? No, I promised myself that I would never do it at home, that I would never involve my children. Mm-hmm. But at this point, I had stopped taking my lithium. I was in a terrible place. I was in a very dark, low place. And I was just, I, I was delusional. I was hearing voices. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. I took all the pills that I took with my daughter laying next to me in bed. At home? Yeah. Mm. And I will never forgive myself for that. No? You think ever? No. Did she know? Neither of them woke up even once the police and the ambulance showed up. Police again. <sighs> the police again. By chance in any of these encounters, was it the same officer or officers? Yeah. You've got, wow. I mean, you're not in a tiny town. That's pretty weird. Well, it was all in the same like district and we okay. have a crisis intervention team. Right. Well, so they need to be trained better. Yeah. Telling me. Crisis escalation team? Um, it was crisis intervention team. That yeah, I'm, call- I'm, I'm rebranding it. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I see what you did there. Okay, yeah. I missed that. Woo. Oh, this is what we do in New York. This is how we get by. We do things like that. Crisis <laughs> escalation team. Good job, fellas. Yep. I mean, they're fucking good at that shit. Yeah. So you same 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 drill? Oh, you know, I get the attitude and remarks about my actions and my decisions. And again... I get in the ambulance. They escort me to the hospital. The paramedic that rode with me in the back was the only compassion that, that I received throughout the experience. Um, he was phenomenal. Talked to me. You know, he reassured me. You know, he shared some of his story with me. And it just, it, it made the experience just totally different for the better. He should get a raise. <laughs> he should. Really? I think at some point you had said that you were always trying to think of what you would say to your kids or your, your how to t- let them know that it wasn't their fault. And so did you do that in some form of a note or a recording, or did you ever do that before you tried? No, there's gotta be hard letters to write. I mean, the only thing that I did write is I wrote out a set of instructions on how to care for my children, their likes, their dislikes. Mm list of their doctors and their phone numbers and you know they need to go to the dentist every six months they need to go to the pulmonologist every six months like this is what else you need to do you know don't feed them that and who was that letter for it was for my husband it was for you know whoever was going to be helping him right yeah Outside of the people that learned about it because they were at the hospital or your husband, did you tell anybody about these attempts? Any of them? 
Uh, I think I've told probably at the most two people. Friends, family? Friends. Uh, my family, I don't know what they know because no one talks about it except behind my back. Um, what about a therapist? Yeah, I've did, got a therapist. Did you tell this person? Uh-huh. Some people don't. Some people don't tell a therapist. Am I right? <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm paying him for. Right. But it, you said at the beginning of the conversation, you do, really don't have people to talk to or not enough mm-hmm. in the way that feels like it would be. I don't know what word I'm looking for here. You know, if you hear the podcast, there's a question that I ask everybody these days. Yep. You know which one it is, right? I think so. What's your answer? If we're on the same page, of course. Am I going to try again? Mm -hmm. For the sake of my kids, I wish that I could say no. Um, But unfortunately, I mean, it's inevitable. I'm 35 years old. And honestly, Sean, I don't think I'm going to see 40. Do you think? Oh, yeah. All right. So you're probably not making it till 40. You go to therapy. You're on medication. Like I could understand, and this is going to sound super dark, but I think you can handle it because you're living your life. You're doing what you can do, right? Like what else could you do that might change the future is what I wonder. I think when people hear something like that, they would typically say any number of things. And some of those things would be things you might explore so that you could get better. And my mind goes to, well, you go to a therapist, you're on medication, you're trying stuff. There's always more stuff I suppose you could do or try. You know, I'm trying stuff. I'm taking my meds now like I'm supposed to. You know, I'm trying ketamine. It gets me to a point where, yeah, yeah, I'm better. But on the misery scale, I'm still pretty miserable. Yeah. And it's like, I'm going to keep trying and, you know, chugging away for the sake of, you know, my kids. But, you know, there's definitely going to come a point where if this is as good as it gets, then I can't fucking do it until I'm an old lady. This is the thing when it's long-term is you're like, yeah, this is what the next 10 years are going to be like, probably. Yeah. So, What is, if any, do you have a myth that you would like to dispel? Um, that people that are suicidal are weak and selfish. You know, I think people that deal with thoughts of suicide, especially on a regular basis, are probably some of the most resilient and toughest people you can encounter. Mm-hmm. You know, to fight your own mind every single day and get to the end of the day and to still be alive is an incredible feat. Totally. And, you know, that they're selfish. This is a pain that unless you live it, you you can't understand it. You gra- you can't grasp how unbearable it is. Yep. Um, you know, so you get to a point with this symptom of an illness that your mind is literally telling you that your family and your friends and the world would be better off without you because you are a burden. You are this, you are that they're just trying to deal with that pain as best they can. Yep. A question I rarely ask, but I feel like I want to, (laughs) Yes. if if you could talk to nine-year-old Sarah, it's such a like Oprah question. It's not a Sean (laughs) question. What would you, what, if anything, would you say to nine-year-old Sarah? The the little girl who started getting those panic attacks. You're worthy. And uh, what else would you like to add? If anything, I appreciate you sharing everything you did. I really do. You know, really just quickly, the one thing that I want to hit on is kids can suffer from mental illness as well. 
Um, you know, don't shrug off any concerning symptoms as just a phase or just, you know, preteen adolescence. You know, if you see something that is concerning to you, you know, talk to your child. Don't be afraid to take them to a professional. Um, you know, starting when they're first displaying those symptoms can make a world of difference in their journey mm -hmm. to mental health. And I think we're getting a little better at it than we had been. However, uh, it's one of those things that like each generation does a little bit better than the last. Let us hope. Yeah. Good thoughts. Uh, what is on your shirt? Hope. Sarah has got a shirt that says in pink letters, hope. And she's got a tattoo that says hope. So, all right. We can hope a little mm -hmm. bit. Awesome. Thanks again, Sarah. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to Sarah down in Kentucky. Thank you, Sarah. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com, on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. There's also several links in the show notes. The first one is another way you can reach out. You can leave us a recorded message, so there's a link for that, as well as a couple of ways you can leave a financial contribution as we try to expand the podcast, reach more people, help them feel a little less shitty and a little less alone through these conversations and stories, as well as some information on an upcoming event. This next one is the Mental Health Happyish Hour. It's a virtual open mic. Come share your story or listen. We'd love to have you. And that is all for episode number 127. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>